everybody. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here today with Eric Posner. Eric, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Richard? Uh, I'm doing great. And just for the audience, for those who aren't aware, can you uh, introduce yourself a little bit? I'm a law professor at the University of Chicago. I uh, have written about you know various subjects, including uh, constitutional law and I've written recently about Trump and executive power, which is what I imagine what we're going to talk about today. Right. Yeah. You, you have broad interests. You've written on everything from uh, international law and human rights to antitrust. Uh, you, actually, we met when you were my uh, professor at contracts at the University mm-hmm. of Chicago Law School. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I enjoyed those classes and it's an honor to have you on. Uh, so, but we, we there's so much we could talk about. But yes, yeah, we're here to talk about your latest book, The Demagogue's Playbook, The Battle for American Democracy from the Founders to Trump. Uh, so you have an argument. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a topical argument. Uh, and it's, it puts it in the, puts what's happened in the last few years or tries to in the context of American history. Uh, what's the basic argument of the book? The basic uh, argument of the book is that uh, demagoguery is a, a vulnerability in any de- democratic system. And demog- demagoguery means, um, well, it refers to a kind of rhetorical style of politicians and uh, politicians who try to obtain power by appealing to uh, people's emotions, uh, especially negative emotions like anger and resentment, and uh, who try to exploit divisions in society um, and uh, you know are not terribly concerned about public policy or, 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 or policy reform. And so, you know, people like that uh, pose a challenge to democracy because uh, they typically, uh, in the course of obtaining power, and uh, they challenge the institutions of government and often more broader institutions of society because um, those institutions stand in their way. And they typically... Uh, argue that institutions are dominated by elites who are not interested in advancing the public good. So in the, in the course of attacking those institutions, they can undermine them, uh, resulting in, uh, you know, either political chaos or just a weakening of, of government and, uh, and of uh, public policy. Uh, and so the book um, looks at a, at a range of, historical examples of uh, demagogues or near demagogues in the United States. Uh, I claim that the the first real powerful demagogue was Andrew Jackson. And I think he was, before Trump, the only demagogue who achieved the presidency, although others have tried. And then I talk about, you know, a number of lesser demagogues, Huey Long, uh, McCarthy, uh, the Southern demagogues of the late 19th century and continuing through much of the 20th century uh, and so forth. Uh, I argue that aside from Jackson, American presidents have not really been demagogues, although, you know, there's always a little bit of demagoguery in any uh, politician, but not mm-hmm. true demagogues, but that Trump uh, is, a, is a real or was and is a real demagogue. Uh, who managed to achieve power uh, in the United States uh, for a few years. 
Uh, yeah, I just want to ask about one thing within the definition of demagogue. You said demagogues don't care about policy. Now, when people talk about uh, Trump, uh, you know, I think that's that's obviously true in that case. But people tend to put Trump into this uh, sort of a uh, global, uh, this sort of global framework. And there's he's compared to other leaders, uh, some of them like Erdogan or Orban. These people do seem to care about policy. So, in in your uh, definition of uh, demagogue is not caring about policy fundamental, or can you be a demagogue with an ideology who actually wants to do things? Uh, yeah, good question. So, so one of the complications, and I'm sure we'll run across this uh, in our conversation, is that demagoguery is a is a continuum. You know, there's no, there's no politician who, who who's really a saint. You know, who has no demagoguery in him. And so you go from people who have a little bit to people who have a lot. You got to draw the line somewhere. Um, and so there's, it's always going to be, uh, we can always argue about certain uh, types of politicians. I do think most demagogues, you know, they have political preferences. They, they have certain visions of the world that they want to achieve. Um, I mean, there are people who are true cynics and, and simply don't care. But I don't even think Trump, you know, literally, I, I don't think he literally had no ideological views. I think he did have a kind of a, you know, he, had, he has a rough set of political and ideological preferences and that he tried to achieve them uh, within, within constraints. Um, but I do think that a demagogue is far more concerned about achieving power than um, achieving some kind of ideological vision. And so they put much more emphasis on, uh, you know, politics, on, on um, gaining power and keeping it than, um, uh, than you know, implementing their, the political vision that they care about. I think some very effective demagogues and um, uh, very effective politicians uh, happen also to ha- to care uh, deeply about some kind of ideological goal. I mean, I think Hitler was like that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, those people uh, are at the edge a little bit of, 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 of what a demagogue is. I really do think though that the key element of the demagogue is more the style of uh, political action, the attack on the elites, for example, and the use of anger and division. I think that's much more core to the definition of demagogue than uh, the depth uh, to which the person might have ideological goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and ha- so yeah, I mean that's that's yeah. You bring up uh, Hitler, you, that, you know that's interesting because the uh, I think the defi- the part of the definition that says doesn't care about policy. I think that's very. I think that's true in the American context. I think that's a uh, uniquely more American form of demagoguery because you talk a bit about uh, McCarthy in, in the book, and then you talk about Trump. And yeah, it's a spectrum. Every, you know, everyone has some preferences, but I, you know, I think I think that the American demagogues tend to be sort of at least at least those two uh, that pop out tend to be very low on sort of the scale how much they care about policy. Where if you know if the if the reference is Nazi Germany, that's a you know that's a uh, you know Hitler, that's a demagogue obviously with an ideology <laughs> who cares and wants to accomplish things. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I guess I mean, one question is: I mean, how much should we 
I mean, in the, in the grand scheme of things, right? So you have you have demagoguery, you have dishonesty in politics, uh, you have lack of civility, uh, and I think a lot of people who supported Trump. I mean, most Trump supporters were just Romney supporters. I mean, the you know the, the changes from one election to the other are, are marginal. Uh, I think a lot of people would say, you know, I, I care about policy, I care about taxes, I care about foreign policy, I care about uh, abortion, whatever. And you know, ninety percent of what he's what he does, the judges he's going to appoint, the people. Uh, uh, he's going to appoint to run the agencies, uh, you know, the bills he's going to pass, which was just, you know, he put, a, he just passed the Ryan and uh, McConnell tax cuts and he passed, he uh, signed them in the, in the first term. Um, that, you know, like, why, why should I care? Okay, he lies, you know, he, he's uncouth. It's weird. But in the grand scheme of things, I care about that very little compared to the policy outcomes that I care about. Well, I think there, there are two things. Um, the uh, the first is the attack on on institutions. I think everybody should care about that. Um, any complicated organization has to be divided into you know groups of people with specialties, and that means uh, education and experience and so forth. You just can't have a functional government, or for that matter, any any kind of complex institution without some kind of involvement of elites or elite control. And so if somebody uh, obtains power by attacking these institutions, undermining public confidence in them, and in particular uh, carries through the threats and tries to undermine those institutions wherever they pose a threat to him, that's that's extremely damaging. Um, and the second point is the um, exploitation of already existing divisions in society. So, you know, if you have a country with a lot of people who need to live together, um, you know, somehow people have to suppress uh, their ideological disagreements at, at some level, no matter how deeply they, they hold them and how passionate they are about them. I think everybody understands this. This is just part of human life. But um, people are susceptible to being, you know, whipped up into a frenzy making it more difficult for people to live with each other, cooperate, um, and, uh, you know, and making it uh, more difficult for people to, to trust institutions which are controlled by the type of people that they, you know, that they no longer like or, or like less as a result of, of, of the politicians' uh, demagoguery. I think both of those things are extremely damaging. And, you know, if all that Trump was was a person who, implemented standard, you know, Republican policies, you know, I wouldn't have written this book. That That's not what's distinctive about him. How much do you see Trump as sort of something new and how much do you see him as a, sort of a continuation in general trends within the Republican Party? Well, I think, you know, so this book is, you know, self-consciously historical going back to the founding. And to some extent, you know, one of my points is that, that he's not new, you know, this style of demagoguery, it has a 200-year or longer tradition in the United States. I think what's really new about Trump is that he's a president who was a demagogue. Although, as I said before, Andrew Jackson is a, is you know also, was also I think a, a kind of demagogue, but at a time when the presidency was weaker and, and less con- consequential. So you know, taking the long view. There have always been these kinds of strains in the United States, in the United States political system. And I just think it's closely connected to the democratic tradition in this country, which is anti-elite and highly individualistic in, in many respects. 
Um, so, so, you know, okay. But you were asking about whether this is, you know, this reflects trends in the Republican party. I mean, there's always been a left wing type of, of demagoguery in the United States represented by Huey Wong, for example, and a right wing version represented by McCarthy. I think in the last, let's say, going back to the new deal, the demagogues have tended to be right wing in this country. And I, and it's not because I think there's anything inherently demagogic about the right. It's just, I think that's just how history has worked. Maybe because liberalism was so triumphant in the new deal and in kind of reshaping federal uh, institutions and making them much more powerful. So, people who have, um, and, and, you know, attracting elites to them. So the people who don't like that system have, you know, had to struggle for uh, a kind of a political rhetoric that would work. And then in this period, you know, from the 40s to the present, there are really two types of demagoguery that are worth distinguishing. There's the Southern racist demagoguery, which, um, which of course, um, uh, was very important in the South, but didn't really uh, have that much influence over national politics other than, you know, marginally through George Wallace's efforts to become president in the 60s. Um, and then much more subtly, I think there was a very gradual rise in a kind of demagogic um, politics in the in the Republican Party, maybe starting with Nixon. Uh, I don't think of Nixon as a real demagogue, although there are certain strong mm-hmm. demagogic elements in the way he conducted his campaigns and his presidency. But the, he begins to attack institutions in a way that earlier Republicans did not, like Eisenhower, uh, going after the government um, just as being bad and and, you know, um, run by liberals, and and then Reagan would would uh, carry that on a little bit, and then you get a, an even clearer type of demagoguery and people like uh, Buchanan, uh, who was of course not successful in his attempt to become president, but you know has a bit of a Trumpish feel about him. Although I think he was far more intellectual and mm-hmm. concerned about policy than than Trump ever was. So, you know, there have been these themes in the Republican Party uh, over the last several decades, definitely. But I don't think Trump was inevitable. Um, I think he's just he was just successful in carrying them through to the presidency. Yeah, I think I think you're right. He wasn't inevitable. I mean, people say, you know, people think, uh, uh, you know, this is just a sort of natural consequences of Republicans or, you know, he's, uh, uh, you know, he, he says something very deep about the culture. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, I, I tend to think if he never came down that escalator in 2015, you would have probably had Ted Cruz or you would have had a Marco Rubio and our politics, uh, uh, you know, would have been completely different. It's uh, sort of a great man theory of history or maybe, you know, not so great man, but <laughs> the individual. Yeah, or the, or the contingency of history, you know, I think is an important, uh, an important thing, you know, accidents, a lot of what we, what in retrospect seem inevitable were really just historical accidents. So, so you sound a little bit different from a lot, a lot of the critics of, uh, 
Trump in the sense that I, you know, I just mentioned, you know, it could have been Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. A lot of people would say basically the entire Republican Party now is just anti-democracy. And, you know, maybe like someone like Ted Cruz is just a little bit uh, less crude than Trump. Uh, but it's the, you know, it's basically the same ideas. You, you don't take that position. It's more, it's more a style. It's more attack on the institutions. But, but, you know, I think now that I think of it, the, the institution, like you said, um, the demagogue wants to, uh, you know, not not have institutions or wants to attack institutions and you need elites, you know, which is which is absolutely true. But isn't it more that they want a different elite or different institutions? So you attack public education, for example, you have charters and vouch, you have charter schools, you have vouchers, you want to go from uh, uh, the public school system to, you know, private school system that's going to teach people different values, you take power away from, say, federal bureaucrats, you put it in the hands of the markets, and that would be more uh, powerful corporations and CEOs. Um, is, is it they they don't? Is it that the demagogues don't like institutions, or they just want different institutions to have power? Uh, so, right, I'm not opposed to uh, institutional reform. I, I don't think a politician who says, for example, that the courts are run by judges who are left wing or right wing. Um, is necessarily a demagogue. I don't think a a candidate who attacks the FBI saying that it spies on people is a demagogue. I don't, I don't think, you know, people who criticize the EPA or, you know, any, the Fed, that's not what makes someone a demagogue. These institutions are all flawed. Uh, They can all be improved. Some of them do go off the rails from time to time and, and need to be abolished or constrained. People who criticize the public schools often, you know, have perfectly good arguments. Um, so the difference between being what I call in the book a reformer and a demagogue is that the reformer, you know, has a like a, a you know legitimate criticisms. A demagogue might or might not, but B, much more importantly, doesn't argue that we can just do away with institutions and and let you know people just you know somehow flourish in the absence of them. But they want to improve the institutions. They want to make them better. And, uh, and that may mean abolishing certain institutions and replacing them with other things. What, what, what's distinctive about conservatives or, you know, sort of traditional, I don't know what to call them anymore, uh, sort of an older type of Republican or conservatives from the 1980s, when they made pro-market arguments, um, you know, well, often rhetorically they would attack government, but, you know, Markets require governments. They require courts. The courts have to be high quality for markets to work. They almost always require regulators of, of some sort. The regulators have to be high quality. You, you, you know, most conservatives, uh, or at least, you know, not non-extreme conservatives think you need a federal reserve board. That has to be high quality. Um, and people can argue back and forth about the powers that these institutions should be have, should have, how the people who run them should be appointed. All those things are legitimate matters of discussion. What the demagogue says, though, is we just want to wipe them off. We just and the extreme type of demagogue, and I think Trump verged on this, is basically says, "Look, I'll just make these decisions. You know, we don't need a Fed. I'll just I'll just tell them what to do, or you know, and um, and it, it, you know, if, if this institution does things I don't like, I'll just get rid of the people. I'll just order them what to do." That that that's the demagogic uh, type type of ta- tactic. Um, I don't, you know, are Republicans anti-democratic? You know, I think the the current argument that they're anti-democratic is really focused on the efforts of Republicans to 
reduce or restrict, you know, voting to some extent. Uh, to be honest, I haven't followed these debates very carefully. My sense is that, um, you know, they're, they're not trying to eliminate democracy, but they are trying to improve their chances of winning elections by, you know, favoring uh, or disfavoring people who are more likely to vote Democratic. You know, that's troublesome. That's not the same thing as being anti-democracy, which is, you know, I think a term that should be reserved for, for, true, for true authoritarians who want to, you know, get rid of voting altogether. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that distinction. Yeah, it's not the, the discussion is about the voting rights, but I mean, if you follow a lot of the, the press, I mean, it's 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 basically it's it's everything. I mean, it's it's uh, it's uh, you know uh, it's um, uh, yeah, not just not just the voting, but also um, you know just uh, you know criticizing institutions, uh, uh, the electoral college, the Senate. I mean, uh, you know, not confirming Merrick Garland. I agree with you that it's it's sort you have to sort of reserve you have to reserve that criticism for things that are actually undemocratic or, or it sort of loses its bite and it just becomes, it just starts to sound like a, uh, a partisan attack. Um, how much do you think that, uh, do you see, I mean, do you see, do you see wokeness on the left as a kind of demagoguery or do you, ref- do you because uh, there's a demo- demagogic style and I don't think there was any leader who came, who uh, came around and was really pushing this stuff in the way you can trace Trumpism to, to, you know, the individual of Trump. But do you think there's a demagogic sort of, mass style that may even be leaderless but still share some something in common with the demagogue with a, which is a sort of a, do, a top-down kind of politics right I mean I, I understand your question I, I do want to make a distinction though I, I think it's best to to you know <laughs> concepts have a have a have a way of just trying of expanding and encompassing like everything and I, right. I want to reserve the term demagoguery to a, a political style used by politicians uh-huh. who want to obtain power. Uh, you could you could imagine someone on the left, you know, Mao. I mean, there have been lots of people, uh, Chavez, uh, demagogues on the left who make similar types of arguments um, and, you know, obtain power by, uh, you know, some kind of version of wokeness. Uh, but, but, but when we talk about, you know, Broad ideological changes and social movements and the sort of arguments that people make to each other, you know, day to day, uh, you know, the sort of cancel culture and all that stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on there. Uh, and, and, and I understand that, um, uh, a kind of that, that there's, there's some commonalities between these sorts of mass ideological movements and, and demagoguery, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's some differences. I mean, one thing just to start out is, you know, people make arguments with each other every day. They argue in person, they argue on social media. People make bad arguments because they're people, right? You know, they get emotional, they don't understand something, whatever, you know. We see that on the left and the right. That doesn't strike me as demagoguery or even a a big deal. You know, that's how people learn things and manage things and, you know, make progress or <laughs> regress. It's just, you know, it's just part of, of human life. Um, there have been all kinds of, you know, social movements over the past where people become absolutely committed to some kind of goal uh, and they passionately are passionately committed to that goal. Uh, and the goal is often, you know, 
very worthy or it's admirable or it's maybe a little bit extreme but understandable. You know, there are all kinds of versions of this. But they're so passionately committed that they become intolerant of those who disagree with them. And uh, and then you can get a, a kind of high level of intolerance that uh, that is destructive. Uh, you know, is is wokeness sort of where does it fit? I mean, so like anti-slavery is like that or civil rights movement is like that. Lots of religious movements on the right have been like that. I mean, it's just just a huge part of of, of life and, 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 and history. Um, a demagogue can kind of step in and try to exploit that. Um, I think, for example, after the Civil War in the South, uh, briefly, politics were quite fluid with many, um, you know, basically racist uh, Southern politicians thinking, well, maybe I could, I could come to power by creating a, um, a coalition between poor whites and blacks. So, you know, they were, you know, they, they were racist in the sense that, you know, Southerners at the time were racist, but they were pragmatists. They wanted power and they were willing to, uh, you know, work with people who they, they may have, um, distrusted or not liked in order to obtain power. But as time passed, it became clear that the poor whites, uh, did not like black people were, were racist and, and could, and that, and their racism could be stirred up. Um, and that's what these politicians did. And so there was a kind of an interplay between this decentralized way in which people's attitudes changed over time. And then the demagogue kind of stepping in and, and exploiting it and trying to uh, take advantage of it. Um, as you say, there, there doesn't seem to be like a leader of wokeness right now, a politician who's really trying to ride it. Maybe there is, maybe there are some people, but not someone who's really a major uh, figure. So it's kind of hard to think of uh, demagoguery at this point as a useful category for thinking about this time, uh, this type of ideological ferment. Uh, yes. Okay. So yeah. So let me then rephrase the question a little bit, if not focus on sort of the ma- the mass movement itself, but how leaders or how leaders at least handle certain issues. Like I don't think Joe Biden or Obama uh, can be called a demagogue, but I I would say that there they have there are issues where they take a demagogic perspective, and you know, or they ha- they use demagogic language or ideas. Um, and I, I think the major issue here is, for example, the idea of police shootings. Right? There, the, the, these uh, statistically, this is a very very small event. And the way they talk, the way that a lot of democratic politicians have talked about it is that it's a major threat to life, and, you know, the, the life and liberty and, and, uh, uh, well-being of young black men. And it's just, it's statistically just, just not true. Maybe there's a disproportionate shooting with the number of, you know, unarmed black men killed by the police in this country is minuscule. It's, you know, small compared to all crime in general, small compared to all other risks in the universe. And so politicians are, you know, sort of, uh, uh, they are, um, uh, spreading a, an idea that that's false and they are um you know they, they it is you know singling out you know police it's not as directly as say the way trump would single out a class he doesn't like but a lot of people who a lot of people do feel like it's singling out police or it's singling out americans who disagree with uh uh the narrative uh can, can you see that as a sort of demagoguery or would you would you disagree with that well, you know, I think it's complicated and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't know what, you know, specifically what sort of statements you're specifically referring to by Biden or Obama or other people, 
But let, let me let me make a few comments, and then you can you know follow up if you want with uh, examples. You know, so first of all, you know, I think part of what's going on here is that what people are really concerned about is is racism generally, and when you know racism discrimination against blacks results in someone getting killed that's that's a lot more salient than if it means you know people are getting paid somewhat less than they would be otherwise uh, or um uh you know you know people living in neighborhoods that are uh that are uh you know shabbier than they should because of discrimination it's just it's just much more obvious this stuff is caught on video People see it all, um, it, it, you know, in the natural course of things, the police shootings will get uh, a lot of attention. So I think to some extent, you know, they're, they're bad in themselves, even if they're very rare, but they're also symbolic of the of a larger problem that, you know, many people, most people, I think, probably see as, as, a, as a really big problem that that needs to be solved. Well, but, I mean, uh, couldn't, but, but let me interrupt. Couldn't couldn't Trumpism say sort of the same thing? Here's you know a false thing that I'm saying, but there's some larger truth out there that I'm sort of getting at, right? Uh, the, the, right. Can, well, I mean, I, I agree that you know if 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 a if a Democratic politician or any politician says, you know, the the risk if you're black of getting shot by a police officer is whatever, you know. Fifty percent. numbers on it, right? If they if they if they say it, if they say it's you know very large when it isn't, then they shouldn't. I don't think politicians should lie, and when they do lie, there is yeah, there's an element. I, I have a kind of a discussion of political lies in the in the book. I don't think all political lies are bad. They're often justified, but um, they're usually you know not justified. Uh, and, but, you know, I think of a demagogue in this context as doing something like this, as saying, you know, somebody comes along and says, look, you know, we have this huge problem in America of, uh, of you know, black people getting shot all the time, uh, and I'll fix it. You elect me and I'll fix it. And I'll fix it by abolishing police departments and, you know, do it. And then I have a secret plan. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's what demagogues do. Um, people who say, uh, we have a problem of racism, of police shootings. It's a really hard problem and it's going to take a long time to fix. Uh, I don't think of that as demagogic. You know, we're going to try this. We're going to try that. Uh, you know, that strikes me as, as, as a legitimate type of, of politics. Uh, I think also, um, uh, you, you know, so, you know, I think this is I think this is a pretty kind of complicated situation, but definitely when you have a social problem, you have a problem that let's call it a problem. <laughs> the politicians could exaggerate it because they think it's in their political interest to exaggerate the problem, and that's not good. And then they can also say that they, you know, having exaggerated it, gotten everybody angry and worried, they can they say, now I'm gonna solve it if you elect me. I think that's that's also very bad. Um, I do think it's bad, you know, uh, I think what, you know, the, the right thing to do in trying to approach a problem like police shootings, I mean, it's really complicated. You got to go police department to police department, figure out what's wrong. The, the idea that you just would abolish the police, you know, that's a demagogic idea. I don't think that's a, a good idea. Uh, 
and I, you know, I think the people who initially said let's defund the police have kind of backed off and say, well, that's a slogan for saying take some money that we're giving to the police and give it to mental health workers or something like that, which could be legitimate. I, I don't, I don't know enough about um, this area of policy uh, to be able to say. But you know, this this is definitely, you know, it's definitely the case that whenever there's a problem that inflames people's passions. Uh, politicians see an opportunity uh, to obtain power and, and we have to evaluate, you know, what, what they do, you know, what they say and how they approach the problem uh, with what level of seriousness. And, you know, that's going to, I think that's going to depend. That's going to vary a lot from, from person to person. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the you know, the, um, the question of what democratic politicians, uh, uh, say about these issues, you know, a particularly egregious example to me, uh, was, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris. They, they tweeted, they both of them tweeted something out. And I think other people tweeted out the same thing. They said, you know, on this day, uh, so many years ago, Michael Brown was murdered in the streets. Now, Michael Brown, the, the shooting in, uh, in Ferguson, Missouri, that was investigated by the Obama Justice Department. They cleared mm-hmm. the cop. The cop had to leave his job. He goes into hiding, right? And you have, Democratic mm-hmm. presidential candidates out there saying, you know, this, this kid was murdered in cold blood. I think mm-hmm. I think that's up there with anything you can find uh, that Trump says. And you know, if you if you talk to conservatives, they have they have a whole list of grievances <laughs> along these lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a both sides guy. I think you know, I think it's it would be quite the coincidence if both sides were equally bad in the same way all the time. Uh, but you know, in some cases on the police shooting stuff, I, you know, I do agree with them. Um, anyways, uh, so yeah, uh, moving on a little bit, I mean, how much do you think, so, I mean, uh, what you do in uh, your book and you go into the founding generation, it's interesting because you really, uh, I think one thing you really emphasize, and I think people don't pay attention to enough is that the founding fathers were not Democrats in the Democrats, small D Democrats in the modern sense. Uh, and that's clear from the historical record. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Right. I mean, they thought of themselves as, uh, as you know, Republicans in, in the smaller sense. They believed in republics. And what's distinctive about that is not uh, necessarily that everybody gets to vote. It's that the government is limited. So a republic would be contrasted with an autocracy where the government can do whatever it wants. Now, typically in republics, uh, part of the, you know, the notion of limited government was that, um, you know, some large group of people would uh, play a role in determining policy uh, and, uh, and, you know, something more than an oligarchy, but it's a little, it gets a little bit ambiguous at, at that point. Um, now there are a lot of disagreements among the founders. There were some who, who really were, you know, I think Democrats in the sense that they thought all adult white males and, and maybe not necessarily just white males should be able to vote um, others were more like aristocrats who, uh, who kind of like the British system uh, or something like it. Uh, but with the proviso, you know, nobody really wanted an, an, uh, like a hereditary arist- arist- uh, aristocracy in the British sense. They thought more in terms of aristocratic in the sense of people who were educated and sophisticated and, you know, maybe um, wealthy enough that they that they wouldn't be. Uh, you know they couldn't be bribed and, and they couldn't be influenced in uh, their political their political choices, um, and so and so uh, uh, they you know they were worried about demagogues uh, quite a bit because you know to some of them I think they thought of demagogues as basically just what we think of as Democrats that is people who would 
you know, try to appeal to the mass of voters or the mass of citizens, which would include people who, you know, who know nothing, you know, people who had grown up in a farm in the middle of nowhere and not had any education, not was illiterate, knew nothing about the world. You know, they were worried that people like that could be inflamed. And uh, if they were able to vote, would, would vote for a, a bad person, a, a, a demagogue. Um, they were worried about that because, of course, that was what history suggested could happen. Uh, and it happened uh, again and again. So they were a little bit wary uh, of democracy, uh, at least uh, many of them were. Yeah. And do you think there's a... Um how could I put this? So is it, do you think that the, because I, I see this tension among elites today. So, you, you know, the book you talk, you talk about, you know, there's elites and there's the masses and Trump is sort of the, uh, uh, sort of the representative for the masses who don't like, who don't like the elites. And I, you know, I know we're not saying Trump represents, you know, the entire public, but at least a portion, a portion of the public. Um, but, you know, especially during the Trump era, I've seen, uh, on the left, and the left, you know, sort of officially is egalitarian. Everyone should have a voice. You know, we, we dem- you know, democracy is good. Um, you know, with the, like you can't have too much democracy. And then I see as, as, during COVID, and then uh, you know, e- even like things when Trump fights with like the military or FBI, you know, uh, institutions you think maybe leftists would be more skeptical of. Mm-hmm. I see a lot more appeals to authority. Uh, I see a lot more, you know, just trust the experts. Um, you know, they 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 know what's best. They you know they're they're looking out for us, especially with the national you know. National National security community and the and the military. Glenn, Glenn Greenwald from, from the left, you know, talks about how odd this is. Uh, do you think that there's sort of a? Uh, do you think there's a tension there? And um, do you think it's just a matter of them sort of, you know, they're they're sort of becoming more comfortable with the idea of elitism because they're the ones that control institutions. So sort of the the more democratic ideals are sort of going by the wayside. Uh, gosh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated. You know, I, th- I think, for example, when we talk about the left, there are lots of different people. And, you know, I, I, th- I tend still in my mind to make a distinction between liberals and, you know, the farther left. Um, I do think there is more of a left today than there was uh, 20 or 30 years ago, especially among younger people. But uh I, I still think the the kind of the center of gravity of the Democrats and really of, of the American, you know, I don't know, the American um, kind of culture is more of a, of a liberalism and, and liberal, I, I don't think liberals are um, uh, anti-institution. Uh, you know, I think that, I think liberals are, you know, they're, they're, they're conflict. They're, they've kind of conflicted views about some institutions but I think liberalism, American-style liberalism, is very much pro-institution. I mean, it's just kind of, I think, realistic. You need institutions to promote liberal values and to govern. Um, on the farther, you know, now, of course, it's hard to make distinctions, but as you move farther left, I do think uh, people tend to be more hostile to institutions, uh, especially the military and, you know, law enforcement institutions. And, you know, they begin at some point to begin to seem like anarchists and even libertarians. Uh, you know, they sort of, they go around and start appearing on the right. You know, it, it's quite complicated. So, you know, when liberals, you know, a certain type of liberal, you know, it certainly doesn't, it, you know, isn't hostile to the FBI. You know, the FBI went after 
the mafia and the FBI went after racist institutions. You know, it, it, it's done good and bad things from a liberal perspective, and it's an institution that needs to be controlled. But, it, but you know, saying that you trust the FBI more than the demagogue doesn't strike me as uh, kind of hypocritical or inconsistent with liberal values. I think Trump was far more of a threat to liberal institutions than the FBI uh, ever has been, even under the days of, of Hoover. Um, so, uh, so now, uh, you know, you've said a lot of things there about things moving to the left. I'm not sure I agree with you. I, I read your, your piece about that. I'm not sure I agree with you that that's actually happening. Uh, I think there obviously is this kind of flip-flopping tactical behavior. You know, when liberals are in power or people on the left are in power, <laughs> they trust the institutions of power more. And when they're out of power, they don't, you know, I think that's a regrettable, but natural human tendency. We see this on both sides. It's something that we should resist, but of course it, it happens. Um, are they, are, you know, are liberals becoming anti, I mean, liberalism has always had been in tension with democracy because mm. liberalism is a set of values. And if you live in a democratic system where most people aren't liberals, uh, those values might be violated. And so you do see from time to time liberals throwing support to authoritarian, even authoritarian governments like in Egypt, because they're fearful of, uh, of, a, of a kind of an extreme, a democracy where most people are extremists or at least anti, anti liberals. So there's always this, a bit of this tension. Um, I do think that the U.S. even today still is kind of like the predominantly liberal country. In, a, in the general sense of belief and freedom of, of conscience. Uh, so I don't think liberals really need to be anti-democratic uh, in the near term, uh, even, if, even if they're tempted uh, to be so. Um, I, a final point is I, I do think, you know, liberals are legitimately concerned about the kind of archaic uh, electoral and political institutions we have that give disproportionate power to uh, states with small populations and so forth. I mean, there is a legitimate concern that the, that the institutions are just not producing outcomes that are at the center of gravity of, uh, of American public opinion. I think there's an argument that that's the case. I, t I tend to think that that's actually right, that, that they don't. And so when liberals criticize the electoral college, for example, I, or for example, or the Supreme Court, you know, I, I think that's a legitimate criticism. I wish they had criticized the Supreme Court in the 60s and 70s as well yeah. for being undemocratic. They obviously did not, but better late than never. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, yeah, I mean, when I say liberals have won everything, I'm thinking primarily about social issues. So I'm thinking of anything, uh, you know, related to race, gender, sexual orientation. I mean, institutions don't even pretend to be, uh, colorblind anymore. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and then the, uh, the, the stuff on like, uh, gender identity. I mean, it's beyond, you know, gay marriage. I mean, there's some, there's some data showing like 30, 40% of young people don't even consider themselves exclusively heterosexual anymore. I mean, the sculptural change on stuff like, this is just absolutely incredible um but uh yeah anyways uh the um let, let me ask you this so the um to what extent you know so the, is, to what extent are have elites sort of 
to what extent is it a legitimate idea that elites have justifiably uh, lost the uh, trust of the public? And one thing that uh, stands out to me was what I read about uh, Harry Truman. Uh, he could have made money, you know, hawking, you know, different products in his retirement, but apparently was you know wasn't wasn't wealthy in his retirement. Sort of lived. Uh, I don't know if it was a middle class or poor or whatever, but you know he didn't he didn't leverage his uh, his name and his fame to uh, to you know uh, to make money. And you know I remember seeing uh, George W. Bush doesn't make many appearances, but I did see him. He was at some cheesy business conference a few years ago, um, giving a speech. And you know p- presidents just do this normal uh, just all the time. There was a article in the Boston Globe about uh, generals in the military, and it was looking back the last 20, 30 years. So twenty thirty years, you know, a small minority would go. Uh, of three, four-star generals would go and they'd work for a defense contractor after they retired. And and in the last few years, I think this was around 2010, this article, it was basically all of them were doing that. Um, so there, there, do you see that there's sort of an increasing willingness for uh, for politicians, to for politicians, people in power uh, to sort of leverage uh, you know whatever power they have into personal gain? And can that explain a lot of the backlash uh, to, to the elites? Well, I think, you know, I think the populist attack on, on elites is not crazy. You know, it's based on a, a reality, which is that, you know, the people in power understood in a, in a broad sense, you know, they, they can act in their self-interest if, if they want to. They can get away with it a lot. And there's always this tension. On the one hand, you know, they've got the expertise and the education and the you know, relevant experience you don't want to put someone in power who doesn't have those things. But on the other hand, once the person's in power, that person might act in a corrupt way, either, you know, the extreme corrupt way, taking bribes, or, you know, the, I think the real problem today is that, you know, they, they, they may try to serve the interests of wealthy people so that after they're out of power, they'll be, you know, paid, you know, hired or asked to give speeches or, or what have you. And, and sometimes, even when they don't, you know, they have their particular views, you know, they have their particular ideological views, and they could mistake their own ideological views for, you know, whatever is good for the public. I mean, those are real concerns. Economists call this like agency slack or agency costs. This has been, a, this has been the, you know, the critique of the elites for, you know, 2000 years or, or longer. And it's been the critique of the elites, you know, since the founding. Um, this was the complaint of the anti-federalists who were, you know, were skeptical of uh, of a centralized government, even, even, you know, the the type of centralized government of those days, which was not very centralized at all. So uh, I I think it's totally legitimate to to worry about the elites and to try to think of ways to constrain them so that they're more likely to act in the public interest and to make sure that they rotate out of office and are replaced by different people um, all of that stuff is completely uh, legitimate. Now, what about today? You know, are the elites worse today than they have been in the past? I, I don't think so. You know, I think the elites have always been people who act partly in the public interest and partly in their own private interest. Um, and this was true in the 50s and it was true in you know early 20th century and the entire 19th century. Uh, in the past, before all kinds of ethics laws were passed, were passed, the corruption was much more blatant and worse than it is today. I think partly what's going on today is that since you can't literally take a bribe, you've got to figure out some complicated way, you know, to make money off your, uh, your, your you know, the influence and experience and so forth that you've obtained in, in an office or in some other 
uh, prominent uh, prominent position. What's what the problem today? I think is that things have been going badly for the last twenty years or more, thirty years. I don't know. And you know, when things go badly, it's easy to blame the elites uh, because they're the people who actually control the government. Now, would a better set of elites, you know, elites who are less um, influenced by their self-interest have done a better job? I'm kind of skeptical about that. You know, I think it's easy to say that. But my guess is that elites, you know, they, you know, they're of mixed quality. They do their best sort of, or do, you know, try to do a reasonable job mostly. Um, They are thinking about, making money after they leave office. You know, I think that's been going on. And then sometimes, you know, things go better than at other times. Um, It's been a tough several decades, at least since 9-11. If you take, you know, like here's another, you know, there's a standard view now that the elites were, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s and 90s were deregulating. Uh, That was a huge mistake. Uh, this is a view on the left, of course. That was a huge mistake that resulted in the financial crises, greater inequality, and economic stagnation. I kind of agree that with the benefit of hindsight, deregulation went too far, was not always well designed. But I, I don't think, you know, that the problem was that they were influenced by, you know, self-interest or, or, or some version of corruption. I just think, you know, ideologically and based on what had been going on in the 70s and 60s, people on the you know center left and center right converged on a set of policies that seemed sensible. And it turned out they didn't work very well. Um, so, you know, I think Vietnam, you know, Vietnam and Watergate, the elites did worse than I, I think the historical average. Uh, I think the, uh, I think the, the, the recent problems with, um, well, actually, I think probably, you know, one of the bigger sources of our problem, the problems that are causing a lot of political turmoil today was globalization, which also seemed like a kind of an easy, an easy, easily correct set of policies that people on both the left and right were basically fine with in the in the 1990s. Again, I don't think that reflected corruption. I think the world turned out to be much more complicated these policies had unintended consequences. Um, there was some naivete. You know, it's a whole bunch of messy things. Th- that's why, you know, the demagogue, the, you know, the, that's why I don't like demagogues. Like, I think demagogues will say, oh, you know, obviously the elites of the 1990s were just trying to enrich themselves. They knew that the policies they chose would impoverish everybody else and cause terrorism and pandemics and financial crises, but they didn't care. They just wanted to be wealthy. So if you elect me, I'll just wipe them all out and I'll make the right decisions. The, the world is just, you know, much, much more complicated, much more complicated than that. And, I, you know, I don't think the elites today are, are any worse than, than those of the past. Yeah, I think, you know, I think maybe we disagree a little bit on the sources of uh, uh, sort of an, uh, populist anger. And that sort of sh- uh, shapes how we see demagogues, which, you know, or people we call demagogues a little bit differently. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the idea that, you know, it's globalization, that it's, uh, you know, income inequality that's driving a lot of this. You know, you have to f- squint really hard in the data, uh, you know, of people's political preferences to find an effect of, uh, uh, you know, of economic situation 
and objectively measured. Uh, I'd find an effect of that on political or social attitudes. Um, but the if you look at you know sort of social attitudes, you know it just really really jumps off the I mean jumps off the page. You don't need you know fancy statistics to see <laughs> to see the relationship. Um, and so you know I, I don't yeah, I don't know if we would be you know if you could have had the ideal economic policy, you could have gotten the Gini coefficient you know down to low levels. I don't know how much that is actually driving this. I think people just uh, they don't like you know they don't they uh, they don't like they feel offended basically by a lot of uh, left wing ideas on race on gender uh, on sexual orientation on religion on sort of who gets status and you know who doesn't in society and then I think that's combined with. Um, I think that's combined with uh, developments in sort of communication technology. So the, you know, the rise of talk radio, the rise of internet, you know, as Cass Sunstein writes about people getting in their old silos and getting angry. So I really think it's sort of the cultural backlash uh, plus the um, uh, plus the technology that's driving a lot of this. And so then when you understand that, you know, it's a different perspective of the demagogue. Like, so like Trump is not going to, you know, he's not going to, you know, have a concerted policy to reduce income inequality or bring jobs back, you know, most likely. <laughs> but if all the people care about and all they want is to feel like they're winning and they feel like society and the elites have these social values that are offensive to them, then, you know, maybe Trump does sort of give them what they want. Does, does, that, make, does that make sense? Well, let's see. I mean, I think there are a number of things going on here. I, I really don't think people or, you know, politicians are worse or much different from, you know, in the, in the past. Um, I do think technology is hugely important. I agree with you about that. And that, um, you know, there is a sense in which. No, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying. I, yeah, I'm not saying the the worst thing. Yeah, that was the previous yeah. question. I, it's more that they just have different values than a lot of them. Right. Well, I'm and not they, sure that's true either, either. Right. So let, let's talk about that. So. You know, tech, we, maybe we should talk about technology as, as, as well in a moment, but let, let me put that off uh, for a second. Um, just quickly to defend myself, I, I think if, uh, you know, the bottom 90% of the population were somewhat wealthier than they were in the 70s, you know, that, that there would probably be less uh, anger. I, I could be wrong about that. But, I mean, if you look at the economic statistics and, and you see that, you know, basically, if you're in the median, you, you you haven't really improved in the last 50 years, while the very wealthiest have become much, much wealthier. You know, people, even if people don't know that, they, they do know, you know, that they do, that there is a, like a bigger wealth differential today uh, than in the past. And, and people do see that. And people interact with each other. They watch television. They know that there are these very wealthy people with very, you know, luxurious lives and there are a lot of them, uh, and uh, and while while the you know the median family is is struggling to get get by, now I don't think you know that doesn't necessarily mean they want redistribution, but I do think that that's a source of, of anger and unhappiness uh, in this country. But let me get to your your um, point about culture. So. What's so? I mean, in a way, it's not that different from the 1960s. Another time of turmoil. Turmoil. Political atti- attitudes changed very rapidly. Uh, in the 60s, you know, racism, you know, sort of overt racism, overt discrimination, went from being you know tolerable or even you know you know you know required in some parts of the country to you know taboo basically. Uh, that's a really rapid shift. And of course, a lot of people were angry about that. 
uh, and were resentful toward blacks and toward uh, politicians who, su- who supported them. Uh, and that continued on into the 70s and for a long period of time. And now, so, so that's just a fact. And the same, similar sorts of things are happening today with gender, race still, uh, sexuality, and, and so forth. You know, that ha- that's happened before, you know, that's happened many times throughout history. They're like these sudden convulsive changes in, in public opinion. These convulsive changes in public opinion uh, are a challenge to the politicians who have to pick sides, right? Once you've got a group that's passionate about something. It's interesting about politicians, you know, who people think of as woke, you know, they, they usually are behind, right? Like Clinton... Yeah. Bill Clinton signs the Defense of Marriage Act, you know, he's not pushing, you know, gay marriage. He's on the opposite side. Obama takes a long time to come around to to, to gay marriage. I don't see Joe Biden as, you know, really pushing these things either. They're like cautious politicians who are trying to, you know, they're confronted with this divisive uh, social argument and, and they're trying to kind of either pick sides or try to, try to um, uh, temporize or, and uh, I don't know what, you know, there's going to be a lot of resentment because people are dividing now and ultimately the political system is going to take a position and either one group is going to win or the other group's going to win and the group that loses is going to feel resentment. And that's an opportunity for uh, demagogues uh, to, um, to get involved. And, and you know, Richard, it's not always in the direction of the left. You know, when I was growing up in the late 70s and 80s, the country was moving to the right, was moving to the right on drugs, to some extent on sex. Uh, it wasn't as extreme, so it didn't cause the kind of convulsions that, that we have today. But there are all these shifts. There have been religious awakenings that, you know, that wokeness has been compared to. Uh, and, and I guess you're just going to get turmoil when that happens and, and resentment. Uh, I, I just, I, I don't see, I don't see that as being the fault of the elites, really. Uh, and, and then, of course, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even sure the elites are le- even putting aside the politicians. I'm not sure the elites generally are, are pushing these uh, ideas that they seem to be more of a kind of a decentralized mass movement to me. Yeah. I think uh, that's like true. these re- religious awakenings rather than something that's being uh, pushed from above. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that uh, when Republican politicians, you know, are conservatives or you know, media personalities, they want to sort of, uh, get people riled up and they want them to feel like they can do something about it. They'll say, this is Biden's America. This is Obama's America. This is Hillary's America, right? This is, they, it's, there's a political incentive to portray it as a top down thing because then it's easy, right? You just get rid of Obama and vote in a Republican and, you know, th- th- all this bad stuff you hate will, will stop happening. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree that the politicians, especially, yeah, on the Democratic side, especially the ones that succeed. Uh, tend to be behind sort of the latest the latest trends. I did this uh, s- uh, small analysis on 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 Twitter, which uh, during the Democratic primaries uh, in tw- in 2020, over uh, who put their pronouns in their bios. 
<laughs> it was like eight of them did and then eight of them didn't it was like perfectly you know down the line uh-huh. and and i did a little you know correlation statistical analysis and showed that the ones who didn't use their pronouns were winning it was just like it was because of you know sanders uh-huh. and biden were two who didn't and they were winning so it was like a little you know sort of tongue-in-cheek right. analysis but it does get right. it you know it does get it uh it does get it something real uh yeah so let's um just like switch gears a little bit and uh, you know, I read your, um, uh, it must have been, you know, a decade ago now, I read your book, The Executive Unbound. Uh, you wrote it with uh, Adrian Vermeule. Um, you know, he's a, he's a Harvard law professor. A lot of my listeners will know him as sort of a Twitter troll, but he also, he also does a lot of scholarship. Um, and the idea behind that book was sort of, you know, the, we have to sort of concentrate power in the executive because the executive is, is accountable. Um, it just works better, right? You know, the checks and balances are sort of overrated. Is this book, is this, you know, worry about demagoguery? Is this sort of a refutation in the, of that book or how do you sort of reconcile the two? Yeah. Well, the book, you know, the book, the book, I can so I can see why people see a contradiction between these two books. I don't see as much of a contradiction, but I do agree that there's a, a te- definitely a tension. Um, so first thing about the executive unbound, the executive unbound was really about um, focusing on emergencies, wartime emergencies, and other types of emergencies, and uh, pointed out, you know, just as a historical fact that I don't think many people disagree with that during these emergencies, the executive usually kind of takes over, determines policy, executes policy. Congress and the courts are kind of fade into the background. They're not, by the way, you know, a lot of people interpreted the book uh, to mean that they kind of disappear and do nothing. That That's not true empirically or historically. Um, they, they're, they're important, but they're not nearly as important. They're not the primary policy setters. They're more reactive, and the, the president is the primary policy setter in emergencies. And and then I, you know, and so that's the empirical point. And then normatively, we argue that that's sensible. Like you, you need a strong executive to deal with emergencies because of the nature of emergencies that they're they things move rapidly, confidentiality is required, and and so on and so forth. And this this is actually a theme, and you know, as you know in liberal, democratic, political thought going back hundreds of years, even even longer. Um, and the Romans, as, as you know, actually had an officer called the dictator who would be appointed at the start of an emergency and given uh, very extensive power. So, so that's the first point. Now, we extended that a little bit to say uh, that uh, as a general matter, even when emergencies don't occur, okay, so again, the empirical point, that we that we have a system of executive primacy today. That's the term I like to use. Like not. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very interesting yeah. idea. Before we get to the the, the sort of yeah. the normative uh, ideas of the book, the descriptive idea that sort of there's this uh, you know school book uh, a way of understanding American government, which is the Congress passes the law and passes laws, and then the executive interprets it. But you, your idea is that the executive agencies and interpretation has sort of become become sort of most of most of it, right? Just because the executive has yeah. sort of just taken power away from Congress over time and Congress is more, you know not really uh, all that it's cracked up to be or what people as powerful as people think anymore right right exactly so yeah so normal governance you know even outside of emergency has passed from Congress to the presidency over the centuries of American history and so 
while Congress still formally makes laws, you know, basically the president does most stuff, you know, sets policy. And then, as you mentioned, regulates through the agencies, although I think the agencies have more autonomy than than uh, I kind of than I think we we suggest in the book. But um, that's a, they that's are executive. They, they are themselves executive institutions, not you know classically legislative institutions where you have lots of representatives debating in public and then voting on something. So so that's now so that that I think is just empirically correct. You know I'll, I'll stand by that view. I don't think the view that um, America has become a system of presidential primacy. As a matter of fact, I don't think it's that controversial that people disagree. There have been people recently writing about how powerful Congress really is and so on and so forth. But certainly the trend is is unmistakable and people have been writing about this for half a century. The normative argument, which is, I think, more controversial, is that, you know, this is fine, basically. This is the way things should work. And the reason is that, um, you know, le- you know, this kind of legislative body working slowly and openly and voting and all that stuff, you know, it, it made a lot more sense in the 18th century than today. Today, there's a sense in which politics and events are always fast moving, requiring constant interventions by the government. And that just is something that the executive is institutionally in a better, in better position to um, perform than than Congress and, and certainly the, the the courts, and so uh, we make a, a, a normative argument that this sort of shift is good. Now that said, some people seem to miss the point that you know the book is still you know pro democracy. We don't we're not in favor of a dictator or a king. We think the president should be elected, and nor is the book. I think. I think we do use some incautious language, especially in the introduction that may have misled people. But I think the fair reading of the book is that we're not, we don't want to abolish Congress and the courts either. It's just that we don't think they should play a central role as, uh, as Congress used to. And that I think what I would say the courts do today, I think they should be a little bit more limited um, with uh, the executive branch uh, making most of the policy and being constrained by electoral incentives. Okay, so so how do I think about that view after Trump? Well, you know, I'm less enthusiastic about it. I'll admit that uh, a lot of pe- you know, a number of people I talked to when I was writing the book that you know, to their credit, they pointed out that if you have a very powerful president and, and other institutions like Congress and the courts are weak. The president, you know, can use his power to, for example, distort elections and suppress uh, political opposition. In the book, I think we were a little bit too optimistic uh, based on, you know, our understanding of American history. Uh, We didn't think that, uh, you know, that that was realistic. I think it's, I'm somewhat more concerned about that today than I was uh, before Trump. But all that said, you know, as you know, the book, I don't actually call for reforms, you know, weakening of the executive and so forth, which, you know, some people do, because I just don't think that's realistic for a modern country. I, you know, so I, I, I do think we're in a, I mean, this is always true about government, but you have a powerful government, it can do bad things. If you have a weak government, 
it can't do bad things, but then, you know, it can't do the things that you need it to do. Yeah. Uh, I, I think probably, you know, th- there's a question how powerful government you want, but you need it to be pretty centralized, I think, uh, once you decide that you want a government, whatever its level of, of power. And, that, and, and so I'm still in favor of uh, what I call uh, executive uh, primacy. I think there's some like really incredibly serious problems that, that the country faces that I just don't think uh, a we, it can it can confront with a with a weak presidency. Yeah, I mean, is, is, do you think about it a lot in terms of incentives? Because I, I know you do talk about this in the book. Sort of the the executive at least has an incentive because he's going to run for re-election. He wants a legacy. Uh, in in Congress, you know, there's 435 members in the House, 100 in the Senate. Uh, you know, there's uh, all kinds of. Uh, you know, problems with uh, aggregating preferences, you know, Arrow's theorem and, you know, uh, other theorists have pointed out. And uh, is the idea just that there's just the incentives just aren't there for uh, Congress to take, uh, you know, uh, active steps to uh, take, you know, what you need to take, which is political risks to actually solve problems? Yeah. I mean, basically, yes, that I think aggregation of Preferences in a large multi-member body in a huge country is a hu- is just like really hard, <laughs> and that you know Congress creates hierarchical hierarchical institutions to try to manage them, but you know it's it's a mess, um, and uh, and that those kind of problems are not as is not as significant for the presidency. I mean, when we look at institutions, you know, other than the U.S. government. We tend to see a fair level of centralization. We see corporations have a CEO. Now, there's a board of directors, which is important, you know, a a group of people with different perspectives, you know, possibly reflecting different constituencies to some degree or another, overseeing what the CEO does, but they're kind of in the background. And the CEO, you know, you've got one person who's responsible for the uh, health of the organization. And, you know, you see this in the military and you see this in you know, law enforcement, it's just, you know, it's just a, a theme of, of any type of, you know, sensible institutional uh, organization. Now, the government of a state is different from all those things. It's going to be much more powerful and you have to, you know, you, you can't have an excessively powerful president or king or executive. But, um, you know, this idea of centralizing uh, responsibility in one person, it, it, you know, it, it, it's historically a trend that I think reflects functional goals and values and is not, as, as people often say, just the result of powerful men grabbing more power so that they can, you know, be supermen. I, I don't think, you know, that's, that's the legitimate reading of history. Yeah. So we, so, I mean, I think a lot of times people like they see the system and they see it not working, but then they don't think that there is sort of an alternative or a path to uh, make the system better. Uh, so right now, I mean, there's, but there's now there's the sort of a rise of another superpower. Um, and, you know, the U S I think looks back the last 20, 30 years, doesn't think it's been, you know, it certainly didn't meet expectations um, as far as how good it's been. While China, I think has surpassed pretty much everyone's expo- uh, uh, expectations. I don't want to, you know, imply that the U.S. should, you know, adopt the, the, the Chinese system or, or say that, you know, that's something we consider realistic. But do you think there are at least, you know, w- you know, with the caveat that, of course, they do a lot of things we don't approve of, there, there are lessons to be learned from that success over the last 30 years um, for, for us here in the United States? 
I think there are lessons, but not lessons about, you know, how American politics should be organized or how American institutions should be structured. I, you know, I don't think, I don't think there's really yeah. anything in China that I would want to imitate. Well, the central, um, the centralization, right? I mean, you have, you have, you have that at least, right? We yeah, but, uh, but you know, I think centralization is also a feature of, of, of democracies as well, going back centuries. I, th- I think centralization is, you know, basically it's just economies of scale, if you want. You know, it's like the larger the group that needs to be uh, organized, the more you need uh, some kind of centralized hierarchical system to manage them. I, I think that's just like a like a social fact and that um, – you know, if, 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 you know, if you have Iceland, you know, you could, you probably don't need a strong executive or in the United States in the 18th century, when it had a population of 13 million or whatever it was, 20 million, 30 million, you don't, you don't need, uh, uh, you don't need um, uh, a big, powerful central government, but today you do. I, you know, I think the lesson of China is, is more, you know, an old hobby horse of mine, which is the extent to which the U.S. system uh, can be, you know, transferred to other countries around the world. I, I've always been skeptical of that. I think you have also. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it was barely believable, you know, maybe maybe in the 80s, you know, maybe at the end of the Cold War as the, all these other systems collapsed. But, you know, I think anybody with, like, a understanding of history wouldn't believe this. And certainly the last, you know, 20, 30 years of China – you know, their system, I mean, the system is successful at one level in making a powerful country that has a lot of influence over the world. And there's just not any, you know, I think this idea of transferring American institutions to other countries, even countries that are not China, always a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And, and and more obviously a bad idea today, thanks to China than it used to be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, the thing people say is that they used to hope that by trading with China, it would become like more like the United States. And I always thought, yeah, that was sort of a silly perspective. I think that's something you sort of had to say to sell free trade, because you can't just say, I mean, I, you know, that we do a lot of trade, and that's a good thing. And, you know, it lifted hundreds of millions of people helped, or, you know, to, to a limited extent, that was, you know, not, not the major factor, obviously, but lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And we sort of, it, it, but it still had to be framed in this perspective of, you know, they're going to become like us, which I just, I just don't think is a healthy way uh, of going around and looking at the world and, and, and choosing policy choices. Um yeah, so I guess let me let me uh, close by this. So you are, um, you know, I, re- I read the at the end of the uh, demagogue's playbook. Uh, the last, um, you know, it's 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 sort of a it's a it's a chronological sort of account of uh, demagoguery and a, sort of the tension between elites and masses throughout American history. And the last chapter is, of course, you know, Trump, the most recent uh, thing that happened. Um, and uh, I, you know, I was looking for sort of suggestions of like what people should do or like you know how we could fix the system. And you know, there I, I didn't really. You know, I, 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 you know, I must, I must have missed it because it, it just seems, you know, the idea is that this, there's this thing called demagoguery. It's bad. We have to be on guard against it. But are there more sort of concrete solutions or uh, or policy recommendations or reforms that you know you think would be a good idea to make sure that demagogues don't don't appear in the future? No, you're quite right. There's nothing about that uh, about reform. I, I did write some. I did have you know in an earlier draft of the book, I talked about various reforms. And I uh, I dropped it, and I'll explain why. 
So first to answer your question, you know, there are people, there are things that people have talked about as possible solutions to the problem of demagoguery or, you know, just kind of craziness, you know, type of craziness that often accompanies democratic politics. Uh, and, and one that got a lot of attention was, you know, bringing back, you know, getting rid of primaries and bringing back more party control of the selection of presidential candidates, for example, which can be done in a variety of ways, some subtle, some blatant. Um, you know, you could make agencies more powerful, uh, more autonomous. I mean, but I, I just, I guess I'm in the end, you know, while I, most of what I write is about reforming, you know, institutions and laws and so forth, I think in the end, you know, I think de- demagoguery is, is an inherent risk of democracy. And that as long as you have a democratic system, you're going to have this risk. You just have to tolerate it. You know, you, you can't get rid of it. It's just a part of, it's just, you know, a, a part of the system. It's like any tool. If you, you know, any tool can, a hammer can be used to hammer a nail or it could be used to murder somebody. And, you know, democratic institutions can be used for good or for ill. Um, the, the, what's notable about demagoguery, I think, is, is not just that you get bad policy outcomes, but that, you can really undermine the system of government. You know, that that's just an element of democracy. It's still pref- preferable to an authoritarian system. So, you know, you can make reforms that along the margins might reduce the risk from some low number to some even lower number. But uh, I don't think that, you know, I think it would be wrong to feel like you do that and the, and the problem is gone. And of course, whenever you, uh, implement reforms like that, they, they can have unintended consequences. One possibility is they just produce worse outcomes. You know, if you're concerned about the elites not acting in the public interest and your solution to demog- de- the risk of uh, demagoguery is to give elites more power, then, you know, you, you haven't actually made things better. And then even more seriously, I think people are reasonably perceptive and, and they see it when um, elites try to uh, kind of undermine or, or weaken, you know, at least traditional elements of what we think of democracy, like the primary system, and there'd be a backlash, you know, and new opportunities for a demagogue. So that's why I dropped this. I, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's crazy, though, to say that we should just try to avoid demagogues. I mean, I, I what I was hoping to do in the book, uh, and I, I don't know whether I succeeded or not, but was just to try to get into some part of the public debate more of a discussion of uh, the risk that if that if people that if the elites who control government mostly if they're unable to cooperate if they're unable to establish and maintain norms of cooperation uh, so that they can you know more or less govern while trading power you know ultimately they're playing with fire and can create really serious risks that the, the system could be undermined or it could, or it could be, you know, just, you know, badly damaged. I think, you know, some politicians and people with influence are uh, open to that type of argument. You see, you see people making that argument from time to time. So, uh, so that's, you know, my modest, the modest goal in this book. I think just by informing people about the history, maybe they'll be a little bit more 
uh, wary of, of the risks they take when they engage in even small types of demagogic uh, behavior. But yeah. anyway, and, and, you know, for the broader public, I want, you know, I'd like it if people would be, you know, would vote against the demagogues of their own party, you know, or the people who lean in that direction. They don't reward those people, but 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 actually are repelled the way they, they should be. Uh, so anyway, that's that's all I was trying to do. <laughs> yeah, actually, let me just uh, follow up with uh, one more. So right now, um, you know, we talk about sort of a uh, real world, what you're trying to do with your book right now. The, uh, you know, Trump is leading all polls to be the uh, 2020 nominee. The betting markets give him something like a 25 or 30 percent chance. I'm, I'm on the record of saying that's an underestimate. I think, you know, his, his odds are much, much higher than that. Um, and a lot of people were saying in the around after the 2020 election, you know, our democracy is over if he wins re-election. Now, there's a good chance he could be the nominee again. And once you're the nominee, you know, you have a chance. Of, of pulling out another victory, uh, do you assuming that happens, or even just another Trump campaign, you know, to get the nomination, and then you know, thinking of ter- in terms of whether if he gets a, uh, the presidency, do you think that that's an existential, potentially an existential risk for American democracy, or do you think it's j- just going to be like his first term, where sort of you know things got nasty and you know uh, there was a lot of incompetence, but basically you know the country emerged out of it. I, uh, I, so I, I've never made the argument that Trump was going to destroy democracy. I never believed that was the case. And, and I, and I argued publicly against people who did. And I, I similarly don't think, you know, he'll destroy democracy if he's elected again. Um, what I'm more worried is that his style of, uh, politics will be normalized and become the style of, of people on the left and other Republicans on the right, and that that will continue, you know, for 10 or 20 years. And even then, you know, I don't think America will elect a king or a dictator or anything. I just think it'll be a a very badly run country, that's all, with very bad institutions. We've been here before. I mean, this really is what happened in the United States after Andrew Jackson through uh, the bulk of the late 19th century. We had, you know, really bad, corrupt institutions that can be traced back to his anti-elite, anti-institution rhetoric uh, and policies. And I could see the same thing happening uh, in the United States. Um, I think that's bad. You know, I I don't think we have to say uh, it would be bad for Trump to be reelected, my view, that it would be bad for Trump to be elected because uh, only, you know, if if that would mean that our democracy will be destroyed and we'll live in a totalitarian country. You know, I think it will be bad because the attacks on institutions will continue and public confidence in them will continue to decline and that he'll exhibit incompetence in many ways as he did with the uh, COVID pandemic so that if there are emergencies or crises, uh, things will be worse than they would if we had, uh, you know, a different, uh, a different president. Um, I think that's sufficient, you know, to be worried, but I don't think that's an existential risk. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm on uh, Twitter too much because you follow uh, liberals on Twitter, and I know you. I know you got off off the platform, but right. um, yeah, the 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 the, the uh, more common argument against Trump or whatever Republicans happen to be doing is democracy's in the balance. You know, we're 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 going to cross we're going to cross some uh, threshold, and you know, we're not going to be a democracy anymore, and things are going to get scary, and you know, the, the people just sort of people roll their eyes at that, and it's just not credible. It sort of discredits the entire. Uh, I think it discredits to a certain extent the entire. Critique of Trump, but you know, more reasonable, uh, you know, 
critique is, you know, we just get dumber and politics doesn't work. And, you know, we just, the, the country sort of just declines if we, if we stay down that path. I think that's a much more convincing and, and defensible argument. Okay. Well, that's good. That's my argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was great having you here, Eric. Uh, the, the book is uh, the demagogues playbook and um, yeah, we want to do it again sometime. Thanks a lot. Okay. I'd love to. Thanks so much, Richard.